So thank you for joining us. This is the Deadly Analysis Podcast, and we are going to be reviewing and analyzing the 2009 film, sci-fi film, uh, Sunshine by Danny Boyle. This is going to be a somewhat unique film compared to all of the others we've done. It's the second sci-fi film, but I think this movie really stands out as being maybe more of a sci-fi film, traditionally speaking, than a horror film. Like if we were to go to a blockbuster video or a Hollywood video, if this was 10 years ago, super nostalgic, God help me. If we were to do that, this would be in the sci-fi section. I, th I think this would not be in the horror film section. So it'll be interesting to see what we draw from this that makes it so, say, scary or terrifying or fearful. I mean, I this movie scared me a lot. And so I'll try and give why I think that's the case. But I, I wonder how much of that is applicable to other people when they watch this movie, if they're bringing the same sorts of existential shit that I bring to the movie to which this film speaks to me. This is um, Antonio's. We're here today with Antonio, Garrett, and Shayra. And this is Antonio's uh, first choice, his first film to analyze. We've gone through all the mine. We did, last week we did The Babadook with uh, Tyler. That was his first choice. And so this is Antonio's. So I wanted to ask Antonio, why did you decide to choose this film as your first? What about this movie do you think makes it a a good scary movie well there's a, a number of factors the thing the reasons that i picked it is it's a beautiful movie it's just gorgeous it's framed really cleverly it's it's shot beautifully the use of color is wonderful the contrast between the bright solar colors and the blackness of space is excellent the music is quite good the actors are all you know pros and they all deliver excellent performances understated performances which is are the hardest to do and it's also a fucking terrifying movie on a number of factors and also a very thoughtful movie on a number of on a number of levels and so for all those reasons it makes the the top of the list as far as my pick my take on this movie basically is that it's about inevitability it's about what we do in the face of inevitability, how we respond to inevitability, um, the way it shapes us and and different different qualities of it. And there's a whole spectrum that's explored in each of the different characters as to what we do with inevitability. And that's, I think, what makes this movie scary more than anything else is when when you're talking about something like inevitability, that's something that we, each of us as humans, understand. We all have an inevitability built into us in the sense of we're all going to die. And e almost everyone in this movie knows they're going to die before they actually die. There's a couple exceptions, but almost everyone in this movie is aware th of their impending death before it actually arrives. And so we get to see their psychology. That's a psychology with which they deal with that inevitability coming toward them. And um, facing that blackness, facing that, facing, facing that, that annihilation, both, you know, the void of space and the annihilation of, you know, life and mission is terrifying on, you know, both fronts fr in front of you and behind you. And so that's why I think this is an excellent scary movie. What did you think, Garrett? Did you, I mean, is this to you a scary movie? Everything that Antonio said to echo, again, it's visually gorgeous. Uh, I think it's incredibly well acted. I, I, I feel, I, I think it's Killian Murphy, I think is how his name's pronounced. I, I, he's he's just absolutely amazing. I love him and everything he does. I did not find it scary though. I, I, I've i never thought of it as a horror movie. I mean, I, I certainly see certain horror elements in it, but um, you know, in, in contrast with what's what I think is it's sort of its spiritual cousin, Event Horizon, which you know, I'm gonna think of very similar movies. Event Horizon I think is clearly a horror movie. I think 
think Sunshine Moore is clearly a sci-fi movie. But I do want to make one very petty complaint about the film first off. I have, I have some, some, some substantive complaints, but I want to open with a petty one. You do not name a, a spaceship that you're sending to the sun <laughs> Icarus. Okay, you call it Daedalus. You call it Daedalus. Damn it, that's the guy that survives. It's a little too on the nose. It was my wife's first complaint when she watched this with me. She was like, "Why did they do that?" I'm like, "Foreshadowing? I don't know, honey. Like that's I don't." Yeah. Well, the thing is, is they did it and then it didn't work, and they were like, "Well, that didn't work. Let's do it again." Icarus what? too. Yeah. Well, I, I actually, I actually think that there's an element, and and maybe I'm looking too too hard and seeing this under every rock, but I also, I do actually think that there is a slight element in this movie of of magical realism, and I think that that's kind of where the Icarus name comes from, and you see it also very clearly in the way that the character of Pinbacker is manifested. Pinbacker is manifested in in ways that appear clearly slightly beyond natural capacity. And, and and it seems that he's been shaped in in almost a a spiritual a psychic way, you know, by this uh, the the alienation and the and the madness of being so close to the sun. And and Pinbacker actually is one of my more substantive complaints about the film. I I felt that the character. I mean, you, you think you're being generous and calling it magical realism? It seemed to me like it was just uh, weak writing. You know, they they wanted the guy to be imposing, so they gave him superpowers. And it makes no no real sense. And it, it felt like a, a, a forced third act move to me. The main complaint I have is that it built up that Searle was turning into something and possibly what happened to the captain of the first Icarus. So you're thinking, oh, he's going to start going mad and he's going to start taking on these... Uh, these crazy things too. But then he just sacrifices himself and goes and watches his son movie. <laughs> and you're like, wait, uh, what? What? Yeah, I think I think you've misunderstood that Searle's role in the story and the possibly, but and, it just and, seemed and, like he was getting evil to me because you know he's picking his skin and he's wearing sunglasses <laughs> and doing crazy shit. And they even start out in the beginning where they're like, wow, you're the psych guy, but you know, I'm more sane than you. So I thought it was leading to him being the crazy, scary character. I can see that. I can see that. I, I read up a little bit, you know, Alex Garland, the screenwriter, um, who's a very good screenwriter and is also a novelist and he's worked with Danny Boyle before. Um, you know, he, he said that sort of one of his background thoughts on the film was, uh, was you know, he's an atheist and he wanted the sort of the son to represent kind of like a, a, a godlike figure in, uh, in the story. Um, and yeah, so I, I likewise, sure. I think I think this story would have worked better. I mean, I mean I'm, not, I'm not saying it, it, it's what how it should have been, but I, I think it would have preferred it if it had been more like you know again the, the sort of the psychotic devotee of God goes crazy and tries to to kill the people who are messing with his God. I think that would have fit both thematically and felt more like it was just exploring the implications of the story that they had laid out in the first two acts rather than sort of throwing a plot device in there for the third act. I actually feel like the character of Pinbacker represents and and it's good that you brought up the the screenwriter and his motivation in writing the story the particular way that he did because I think the character of Pinbacker represents religion and fanaticism in in this particular schema and I think that that's part of why he's depicted with slightly otherworldly affect I think it's to emphasize the fact that he is the representation of religious force as it were 
within this dynamic, within the dynamic of a movie. But when it's imposed from the out like that, again, when it's, when it's an alien figure coming into you know, your home, again, these, these characters that we've come to know, it, it feels like, again, it, it does not feel- it feels uh, imposed, very imposed. Yeah, I mean, again, compare it to like The Shining, for example, right? Again, you know, the, the, what make part of what makes The Shining so terrifying is it's that Jack Torrance, you know, sort of goes crazy, and uh, you know, he's sort of on the inside. He's part of the family, and then he ends up being the big threat to the family. When you know, it, it, when the big bad monster comes from the outside, it, he's other, you know, and he there's no relationship to him. And it's precisely like like you say, Antonio, if he is supposed, if Pinbacker is supposed to be sort of the manifestation of God or religious force or something like that, then it it, it it, it's a lot more horrifying when it comes from within than when it comes from without. This film in some ways is just in, it, the third act of this film is unbelievably tragic to me. I, the, the movie is so beautiful and so poetic and goes in such a great direction until Pinbacker. Um, I get that Pinbacker was supposed to, you know, uh, represent a, a kind of pr a prophet religious fanaticism or maybe a religious interpretation which conflicts with very atheistic, logical scientific structure and rigor which sort of is all around the Icarus there it's in their conversations it's very left brain very logical very very sciencey and so you have this I get trying to introduce that but it was done so it was done like I don't know it's like when you're when your best friend out of nowhere introduces you to this new woman that he wants you to date and it's just you don't expect it and you're like what the fuck and you're thrown off guard and you're like I don't this is uncomfortable I don't get this that's what I felt like Pinbacker was Pinbacker was just not needed this is one of the few films where although I appreciate I think the the uh the introduction of a character that is supposed to function in the way that Pinbacker is Doing that when you've already set up the first two thirds of the movie in the way they did, it felt unbelievably unnecessary in force. And in fact, I'd actually have preferred no pinbacker at all anywhere in the film and just the film focusing on whether or not the Icarus 2 makes it to the sun. Because I was so terrified in the first two thirds of this film just with that alone. I didn't need the introduction of a monster in this movie to scare the shit out of me. I completely agree. I think that um, if the movie had just been about the Icarus, the, the Icarus mission period, then that would have been all you needed. You know, you you, you didn't even need the Icarus too. You didn't need a previous mission. You didn't need Pinbacker. You didn't need any of those elements. Uh, you, you know, it's 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 like Apollo 13. A lot of people didn't like the movie, but I found it was a surprisingly effective movie at building a certain level of tension and emphasizing the stakes involved where, you know, if you twist the wrong bolt, you depressurize and everybody just dies immediately. And and I feel like you could have done that. In Obviously, you can see the way that they actually shot it. There were a number of, of times when, you know, the ship was in in jeopardy because, you know, something went wrong or something, there was something unexpected or, you know, whatnot. And it didn't require the presence of another ship around in order for disaster to happen and tension to be high and people to have to make life or death sacrificial decisions. So I feel like, I feel like the Icarus one was kind of a, and Pinbacker was kind of a crutch that the movie leaned on in order to keep that going without having to be super creative about it. And I think you can compare that to again a, 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 a the recent film Passengers did something similar, but almost in the opposite direction. The, the the artificial twist in that was that the the ship starts breaking down for no good reason, just because they wanted to mix things up. You know, whereas the ship breaking down in Sunshine is precisely sort of what makes it so 
uh, uh, so complicated because you know they're on this impossible mission. But I, I think I, I understand why they put Pinbacker in there though, because I think again from a story structure point of view, you do need a a third act twist. You need you need a turn somehow that makes that final that ups the stakes for the final part of the film. And if it was just another sort of mechanical complication or another uh, problem with the ship or something like that, it would have felt like more of the same. They they wanted to 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 to, to, to up the ante somehow. And I think they should have done that. I just don't think Pinbacker was the way to go. Yes. That's and, why I think and- Cyril would have been such a better bad guy. And I also think that they could have still kept some of those elements. Like you could tell that the movie went from sci-fi to horror in the third act. And you, the point that I knew it had changed was when they get onto the first Icarus and all of a sudden you see these like faces that are flashing on the screen randomly. I don't know if you guys noticed that. Mm-hmm. They're just like these little jerking little moments. Like and I was one like, frames. oh, yeah. horror, horror starting to happen. This is what's going down now. And um, and it would be completely believable that that's when Searle finally fucking snaps. It, it would have worked. It would have been fine. But oh well, <laughs> it still was, he was still a very, very scary character. One of the things I will give to Pinbacker's character is that he did introduce some pretty substantive content in terms of you know, the things he said, right? The last man. That segment, I thought about that a lot after the film was over. It, his little lines where he says, you know, the, the last man alone with God. And that, I, it, the reason that struck me in this, I hate Antonio for making me watch this film because of this, but that kind of echoed my, like the worst nightmare I ever had. I, I, I made a video about it. I'm not going to go into it here, but um, like it reminded me of that dream I had where I and my dream, like the worst fucking nightmare I had, I know that I'm the last person alive in space in a spaceship and it's like all of the weight of what's before me is on top of me and there's a sense in which that's all this film is about that's what this film is and i feel like pinbacker is the wrong explanation for how to handle that i i i hope that makes kind of sense like he is i feel like the film's way of of saying this is the acceleration of man's downfall as being the antagonist in the film that has a religious interpretation that slows down the icarus that hinders the icarus from doing its job trying to sort of psychoanalyze that um it i think i think there's basically two reasons why they decided to do it with the icarus 1 icarus 2 as opposed to just running with the straight icarus 1 and i think the first reason is that they wanted to show parallel realities. They wanted to show this is how it goes if everybody is, you know, on board with the sort of scientific mindset, right? And and they emphasize this at several points that you know it's the choices of who's competent, the choices of who's most likely to be able to fulfill the mission, etc. They pr- clearly prioritize this at, at at numerous points. And and Pinbacker is the example of what happens if you have the religious interpretation. You know, as you end up you know getting almost there, and then you gas out, and it's just a nut job sitting alone with God, as it were. The second reason I think that they included Pinbacker as a villain as opposed to somebody like Searle is because I think the movie is actually trying to to very subtly push us in the direction of sort of a Buddhist ontology, okay? And, and it does so by emphasizing that under the right conditions, with the right spiritual conditions, that that the way that you can, you know, reach for enlightenment or achieve some sort of, you know, nirvanic sort of experience is through self-immolation. 
and you see this at at least three different points during the movie explicitly. You see it with Kaneda, who turns to look at the sun as it comes for him, and then you see it with Searle, who puts himself in the in the chamber and lets the sun you know expose him, and then finally we see it from Kappa's own perspective at the very end of the movie. And where you see, you know, the stellar bomb activate and so on and so forth. And you also hear some, there's also some, some dialogue that, that supports this notion of Buddhist self-immolation. That, you know, with the right, with the, if, if you are a compassionate person who reaches out and strives to help other people and perseveres until the end, then once, once, once you have done everything you can do, then you can embrace your inevitability with joy. Is basically what is basically the the, the theme that the movie offers, the theology that the movie offers. I see. I, I, that's that strikes me as a little strange because I, I I sort of took the the ending at least to sort of point in the opposite direction. I mean, again, you have this the the. the it's the pressure of being the last man, of having the, the 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 fate of all of humanity on your shoulders. You know, I mean, again, that is a sort of a, as a psychological hinge upon which the rest of the film, or at least the end of the film, can 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 turn. Seems to me to be you know, a very powerful uh, uh, point. And again, something else which they could have put a lot more emphasis on in lieu of Pinbacker. I don't see this sort of. As, I see it almost as a, as a break point. You know, as almost the point something where it just sort of drives him over the edge rather than into a sort of a state of, you know, sort of ego transcendence. Well, let me let me defend that by suggesting in the movie that the movie has a very uh, evolved moral compass. It has a very subtle and evolved moral compass, okay? So so first, let me point to the dialogue, okay? Uh, Searle at one point explicitly, you know, says, we're only stardust. That's, that's how he accepts his inevitable demise with the line, we're only stardust. And then uh, Kappa, or earlier in the movie, when he's asked whether or not he's scared of what's going to happen, of how everything's going to play out, Kappa says, a new star born out of a dying star? No, I'm not scared. And, and that is, that is, that's an incredibly Buddhist theological statement right there, right? You know, you, you die, you sacrifice yourself in order to give birth to something that is new and that is profitable to other people, that is compassionate, etc., it's it's a very it's very Buddhist right there. So think about how think about how people die and why they end up dying and 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 so on, right? Okay, so let's see. So Searle dies in an act of self-sacrifice, and he he dies clearly content with his lot. He gets the experience that he's been kind of wanting to have. It's implied, and he helps saves people in his final act. And you know his his death has meaning and use and so on and so forth. Look at look at the three people who make it back from there right? The three people who make the jump. Kappa, obvious, Kappa survives unscathed, and Kappa is the, is the spiritual protagonist of the movie, the moral protagonist of the movie, as well as just the protagonist in general, as far as the human characters. I'd, I'd say the main, the actual protagonist of the movie is the son, but that's another story. So look at, look at, and then look at the other two. Chris Evans, who is, I'd say, is the second most morally strong character out of that triad, ends up, you know, surviving but you know, with like frost, frostbite and some crap like that, and the the com officer ends up dying and dying. Not only not only does he die, but he's not. But he doesn't get the experience of immolation. He ends up he ends up becoming frozen, and he's a solid block of ice. And then he falls off the edge of the shield, and pff, that's the end. Then he that. gets and then he gets on fire. <laughs> exactly. But, but after being a block suffers, of ice, though, he suffers and dies, and then he's stardust. Right, so his con- his conscious experience, due to his cowardice, is is negative. Right, his state of mind is bad. Where I would where where the 
analogy breaks down a tiny bit is with the Chris Evans character. I think because he does actually show, you know, a a consistently sort of big picture, compassionate, self-sacrificial attitude during the movie, but he ends up ending uh, not with sort of an enlightened kind of death. It's, it's kind of an ordinary death. It is, he, he dies, he knows that there's still a chance. He, he dies doing something self-sacrificial, so his death has meaning, blah, blah, blah. But, there's, but there are elements to the death that, that make it less pure than like, you know, Kaneda turning to face the sun and being just washed over and, you know, immolated in this sort of religious experience. And so where I think, where I think that, that Chris Evans' moral compass is indicated to have gone off is when he doesn't want to go look at the Icarus 1 mission. Where, where Kappa, I think, tries to balance both the universal aspect of compassion and the immediate aspect of compassion. That, that, and that's, where, that's where the moral derailment of the Chris Evans character occurs, where he's universal, but he doesn't also want to try and save the immediate situation as well. Yeah, I mean, I, no, I find that it, it's a compelling and interesting read, but I think it also overlooks things. I mean, I, I think you're right about Cyril's death, but the rest of... Cyril's character, I mean, the guy is clearly an addict. I mean, you know, he is, exhibits this compulsive behavior. He puts himself and his fellow crewmates in danger by constantly going back to the sunroom. And that's, I mean, I remember I read actually doing a little bit of research that, that in an earlier draft of the script, it initially, there's the whole film opened up with a voiceover saying that we used to, uh, to tell our children not to stare into the sun, but we stopped doing that because we found that it just, it made them stare into the sun. You know, just just telling them not to do it made them them actually do it. And and again, I I see why they had that in the earlier draft because there is, I think, that sort of runs as a theme throughout of this. I mean, the whole idea again of it's a metaphor for global warming in a lot of ways, right? In the way that we, we we've sort of screwed up the environment, we need to to, to do something to, to to bring that back. So so both I think thematically, and again, I, I see these as not I wouldn't call them anti-Buddhist, but they just they they don't fit very well with that kind of Buddhist reading. You know, the, 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 these this just shows human beings at our our pettiest, our most impulsive, our most sort of uh, shallow and reactionary, rather than some sort of uh, transcendent state. Well, I think it runs. I think it sort of runs the gamut, right? In other words, you know, on the one hand, you have Trey, who has by far the worst reaction out of anybody in the whole movie. You know, he's just from beginning to end, he reacts poorly. He reacts with emotion initially, with depression afterward, and then finally kills himself. Doesn't look like he was super happy doing it, and uh, it's it's that it's seen as his reaction to the mistake that he makes, rather than his mistake per se. That, it, that constitutes sort of the moral weakness on his part. Whereas there's other characters who make mistakes in the movie, uh, like Kappa, for example, but it's because he, he continually tries to react to things, you know, with, with that sort of double-layered, uh, compassionate approach where he tries to help people in the moment, but also keeps his eye on the mission and, and perseveres until the end. And when he's finally faced with the final inevitability, he he's able, therefore able to accept it peacefully. And so you see, you see people get closer or further away from that based on the the level of sort of redemptive uh, psychology that they exhibit in their final moments. So Searle, you see, deteriorate. You know, it looks like Searle might be heading in a bad direction, but ultimately Searle pulls himself together. You know, at the end, you know, when when it could have been Harvey, they could have said, "Yes, Harvey, you're a comm officer on a ship with no comm tower. It's gonna be you." You know, they could have all just sit, sat there and said, "Yes." that that's the way it's going to go right now. But Searle at that moment chose, no, that's not how it's going to be. It's going to be me. 
And that's the redemptive act that per, that allows him to have that religious experience at the end. I'm really curious, Antonio, why this movie was scary to you. What made this film stand out as something that just left you with scars afterwards? Maybe it didn't leave you with scars afterwards, but it certainly made you kind of go, ugh. Right, enough to think about it. So I'm curious, I just maybe ask you directly, like what was the most fear-inducing element of this film to you? Um, the most fear-inducing element is the element of total, the, the combination of the element of inevitability and the element of isolation. You know, the idea of, <laughs> of breaking down far from anything that could possibly help you. The people around you are kind of going nuts. They're not they're not being reliable partners necessarily. And life itself on earth hinges on everything that you're doing. So so there's a tremendous amount of pressure, there's a tremendous amount of responsibility. You're incredibly isolated and there's also an inevitability. Shit has hit the fan. You now don't have enough oxygen to make it out there or you're going to have to go out on a spacewalk and risk your life with, you know, solar radiation 500 feet away or what have you. Um, that's the chilling element to me is is facing facing such tremendous responsibility, such tremendous pressure in such a tremendously isolated environment and knowing the whole time that it's probably a suicide mission. It just the entire experience requires mental fortitude for every step taken, it, it, particularly the moment things begin to go wrong. It just requires such it, it, just envisioning the amount of mental fortitude that it would take to forge through that situation and and keep from being demoralized in that situation and deliver, most importantly, deliver a performance that is necessary to deliver in that situation is just terrifying. You know, facing the void, facing the facing the simultaneous, it's like yin and yang, right? It's like evil yin and yang. Facing the simultaneous void of space on one hand and just the searing, unconquerable, godlike power of the sun on the other. And you are this tiny speck of dust, you know? That's terrifying. That's terror right there. That is that is almost a Lovecraftian level of terror right there. Absolutely. Uh, that last part is what did it for me, right? So I put in my notes, um, the fear for me was the scope of the project. There's a sense in which this film offers a very, a challenge that is unlike a challenge in most, maybe any other film I've seen. There's, there's a higher consideration really in, in um, Sunshine where restarting the sun, I mean, that's insane. There's, there's, there's layers to that in and of itself, right? It's like breathing life back into God, so to speak, right? We can go into all of the different cultures that we know of in the world that span human history that worship the sun as God. And so if we take that into account and we go, okay, so now the sun's dying, right? God's dying. And so our project is to breathe life back into God and as a result, give life to every human on the planet to continue our civilization. For me, the thought that that's possible, just possible, that that's within the, the broad range of human endeavors is so terrifying to me that that could be the thing that happens five, ten, you know, 10,000. I mean, I don't know when the sun's going to go out. I'm assuming it's not going to happen in the next 10,000 years. But at some point, the fact that a film presents that as being within the realm of human capacity uh, is, A, it's, it, to me, it's deeply atheistic. Prayers ain't working. All this other stuff ain't working. Fuck it. We'll do it ourselves. It's like John Ottaway in The Grey, right? That scene where he cries out to God. God doesn't answer and he has that realization moment and his eyes sort of, the light in his eyes goes out and he says, fuck it, I'll do it myself, right? That, the fuck it, I'll do it myself is sunshine. It is a, an immense project that is beyond 
anything we could really comprehend. And when I was experiencing that through the lens of the different characters, that's the other thing that happens in this movie is that the, the camera is very perspectival. Like you get all of these shots from within suits and stuff. So when you see all of this taken from various perspectives, it, it just creates an, an unbelievable atmosphere of like vastness and emptiness and and a, a, a very real, you're right to call it Lovecraftian, a very real cosmic dread that's on your back. There's an anxiety that is just so thick you can you can cut it in the air, you know? And I didn't need a monster in that regard. And I, I think Garrett is totally right in, in connecting this to Event Horizon. Event Horizon is almost like the redheaded stepchild of this film to me. I can't believe, even believe I'm saying that. Like Event Horizon was almost a cheaper version, a cheaper version where there's a more visceral sense of horror uh, I think Garrett in one of the early podcasts sent something like certain films hitching the mirror neurons, right? That that to me is what Event Horizon kind of does in space. But what made Event Horizon, I think, more scary viscerally was the monster, the, the thing in Event Horizon. Whereas I think in Sunshine, it's just uh, the, the aloneness in space given this project. There's no monster needed. The monster itself is the thing you're set out to do. To me, that's that's how I interpreted this film, and that's why it scared me so much. Very unique in that sense, at least for me. Well, that that actually goes a lot with almost every single religion, though, is there's the light uh, that's the good, and then there's the darkness that's the bad. They That was constant throughout this film. It was a constant theme throughout this film. Um, and whenever the darkness was there, it was, it was claustrophobic. You felt like it, you were being squeezed in and... I think that's where that fear comes from. And that's why it was so important for them to, to light up the sun. I mean, you're trying to bring the lightness back to the world. And that's a very big project. <laughs> like, the idea that you could bomb the sun and make it start up again, that's pretty... I don't even know if that's a thing that could even be. I, I, we don't have, I don't know if we have any science people or yeah, whatever on here. Yeah, uh... <laughs> Um, that, that's, that's actually something I looked into. I, I was skeptical of it when I first saw the film, uh, and I checked it out and yeah, there's, I mean, there's, there's no viable way in which human beings could do that, but you know, you kind of just got certain things you got to let slide a certain amount. But of that's more comfortable Garrett. Like, to, okay. So just really quickly, like to me, knowing that I'm more comfortable knowing that I, we could do that would scare me. Like, I feel like there's the fact that the power is within us to be able to do something of that magnitude, it, it, it places us in the universe in a particular way, in a, in a way that I th it frames our existence in a way that kind of freaks me out. I mean, I, I'm not entirely sure why that is, but just knowing it's, it's almost comfortable to know that there's a wall too high to climb, right? I, there's, it's, it's almost more comforting to know I can look up and go, that's never going to happen. That's my, my place is here. I can't make it up there. Knowing I potentially could fix that, if we were to do it, I would come back to Earth. Like if I was Kappa and the mission was successful, I would come back to Earth like we need to really think about who we are in the universe now. We just restarted a star. And, and, and there's, there's religious implications of that too, right? I mean, the, it's the whole notion of Islam, right? The idea of surrender, of just, you know, of, of, of giving up. Uh, and and not having to take the weight of the world on your shoulders and and acknowledging that it's in hands that are greater than yours. So I think that that fits in many ways with the religious themes. But I and I, I like what Shara was saying about light and dark in part because I mean again you, you, it's certainly that the film is playing with light and dark, but it does it in somewhat untraditional ways because again the sun is obviously the source of light, but in a sense it's and it's terrifying and it's menacing. It's part of this cosmic vastness that you talk about. So it is light. But it is also, you know, and it's good. Obviously, it's necessary. It's light. It's the life giver. But it's also the threat at the same time. And I think that creates a really nice complication for the for that sort of traditional uh, yin yang dark light 
uh, yes, exactly, Garrett. Um, I was going to say the sun is not the hero of the movie. Light is not necessarily a good thing in this movie. It's it it is a necessary thing, but it 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 has the aspect of nature. There's a great there's a great um uh quote about this guy who got eaten by bears, and the the dude the dude was the dude really liked bears, treated them like his pets, and you know was just super friendly with them and cuddly. And then one day he got eaten by a bear. This is the guy and they made so, the documentary about. Yes, exactly. That's one that the Werner Herzog documentary is about. And and it, there was one person who's who's speculating. I think it might have been in the movie, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. And and he says, you know, what do you think that he saw when he looked into the eyes? What did you see when you looked into the eyes of the bear? And what do you think he saw when you looked into the eyes of the bear? And he's like, I think he saw something like him, you know, a kindred spirit, blah blah blah. And I think that what he what he should have been seeing and didn't was the terrifying indifference of nature. That that what was looking back was just interested only just on a, on a brute level it 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 might as well have just been eating him and one day it got bored and that's what happened and i feel like that's kind of how the sun is treated in sunshine it is it, it there's a there's an element obviously you know you're going to restart it it's the whole point of the movie it's the main character but there's an aspect in which it is terrifyingly indifferent it cause it, it it directly or indirectly causes the death of a number of characters it fires off a number of things in the movie um, a number of plot elements in the movie in a negative way, and yeah, it's uh, I, so. So I think I think saying that light is portrayed as good in the movie is true in a qualified sense. It's portrayed as good, but also something that is still even even if we are capable of restarting the star, we're still dependent on the existence of the star to begin with, and the star is still capable of snuffing us out instantaneously. It still has that level of power. And that makes it more like God then, right? Because isn't, isn't there a verse, I think it's Isaiah 45, 7, I could be completely wrong, but um, it, where it talks about God is the one that brings light and darkness, right. um, good and evil, all these things are the things that God yep. puts out there. And I think that's what makes the sun God ultimately. is It's a scary, it's terrifying, fucked up thing that we need to live, so... Yeah, and, and that brings to my mind again a quote from Pascal, uh, you know, again, who was looking up at the stars and said that you know the uh, the the silence of this 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 eternal void fills me with terror, and I think that fits really well with that, like you say, the cold indifference of nature. Another element that I think helps make the movie scary that I think is quite thoughtfully placed, and also in, incidentally, now that I think about it, relates back to the whole pinbacker thing and why pinbacker comes from outside, is that. The dangerous things in this movie are the unknown unknowns. The things that kill you in this movie aren't the known unknowns. They're and they're not the known risks. The known risks all get dealt with fairly straightforwardly and about the way that you'd expect. They're the it, George W. Bush unknowns. It is the unknown unknowns, the things, the things that you don't even know, like that that pinbacker survived that he made it onto the ship, that the panels haven't been adjusted despite the you know ship having rotated a couple degrees, that, that the Icarus is going to automatically rotate things back when under certain conditions that have been programmed in and not revealed to the crew, et cetera. You know, that at, at every point, the thing that ends up being the, the thing that gets you is the unknown unknown, the threat that you don't know could be a threat. The threats that you do know could be a threat get get addressed pretty effectively and in mm -hmm. pretty immediate fashion. And I think that's another thing that helps make the movie scary is the conscious decision to frame all threats as threats of ignorance, where it is it is our ignorance and 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 I think ignorance is 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 a very powerful aspect that makes things scarier. 
for us as humans. We, we do fear what we don't know. I think this movie uses that to sharpen the elements that it wants to intimidate us. Well, especially in light of the unbelievable apparatus that is the Icarus, right? So on the one hand, you have this unbelievable creation by the hands of human people that's going to go restart the sun, all the stuff that I just talked about, this giant project. And then just one fuck up, just one fuck up that you're ignorant of begins an unbelievable snowball of misfortune. And there's a sense in which that is also one of the most scarier one of the more scarier elements of this movie, that on the one hand, we can have all of this technological innovation, all of this intelligence, all of this, everything that we've stood on over years and decades of, of, of progress and get to where we are about to do this in giant, un- to give breath to God, right? And just one simple fuck up just snowballs into everything going going downhill which ultimately could culminate in the end of human existence which 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 point do you think that that was the fuck up because in my viewpoint the fuck up was forgetting to put the shields up they've tried to say it was the other guys fuck up for wanting to try for an extra bomb just in case i think the fuck up was going for Icarus one okay. I, I guess the film i guess the film kind of presents that as the fuck the, the main fuck up right i mean i i i would have been with chris evans character the whole way i would have been like we're not having this conversation i'm, I'm sorry i conservative in me i don't know i feel like that was the mistake I'm, I'm not sure that i i think that they view that as something for which kappa felt responsibility but i don't know that they that, that the movie paints that as inherently as inherently the wrong idea because for, for a number of reasons. And, and the first is because first of all, they say, you know, we're going to get the most qualified decision from the most qualified person. So the movie explicitly tries to frame the decision in terms of the most educated possible risk assessment. And so, and so the, the point there is not that, that the wrong decision was made so much as that even in the most careful possible risk assessment, there are unknown unknowns and then you have to know what you're going to do with it. Here's the counter to that, though, right? I, here's why I think that's not true. When um, Chris Evans, uh, when they're when the shields get messed up, and they're Canada uh, saying, "I'm going to go out and fix it," and they need a second guy, and Chris Evans goes, "Oh, you know, I nominate Kappa." The reason he nominates Kappa is because he feels Kappa was the one who initiated the whole fuck up from me. It was his start. It was his decision. He's the one who is culpable. So I felt like the film was saying to, to me, that's where I, I took the film basically was saying that this is was this was the initiation of of all, the downfall essentially. Well, I think I think the Chris Evans character is painted as viewing Kappa as responsible. I don't necessarily think that necessarily the theology of the movie tries to tell us that Kappa was responsible. I think the Chris Evans character pretty clearly mm-hmm. states at, at several points that, that that's that that's on Kappa. Um, but I think that 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 the movie, you know, like I said, the movie's very moral. The people who live longest are the people who have the strongest moral core. And the people who, you know, die, die in ways that 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 reflect their cowardice or lack of moral core in, in some way or other. And and I think the fact that the Chris Evans character doesn't succeed in his particular mission and the fact that that he that that also that his death is very specifically related to it, it, there's actually an interesting contrast between between the Kappa character and the Chris Evans between Kappa and, and Chris Evans. Right, because um, Kappa is a very cool-headed character. He's portrayed as being cool-headed at almost all points in the movie, and at the couple points where he like flips out, it's very dramatic and impactful because he's so cool-headed most of the time. And so he's sort of like the the ice character, right? 
and and Chris Evans, despite being the guy who's you know sort of logic and reason and let's do let's do this blah 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 you know let's think of think of the big picture here. He's a very impassioned character. He's and he's depicted as a very, being very impassioned. And there's like on his psych profile, it says something to the effect of like history of fighting or something in the background. And so he's sort of a fire character. And so the fire character dies an ice death, and the ice character dies a fire death, which is an interesting juxtaposition. I right. love it. And he is fiery. Um, one of the things that popped into my head, and I don't know if Noah's going to end up making a meme out of this or not, but he was trying to encourage Kappa. I swear I saw Shia LaBeouf like going, just do it! Just do it! And I'm like, dude. I mean, it's worth remembering that Chris Evans also played the Human Torch in the two Fantastic Four movies. Ooh. Fiery guys. Um, but but uh, Antonio, I think that again, it's it has to be Kappa's fault precisely for the reason that you said. It's a moral film, and and Kappa saves the day at the end. That's his redemption. He fucks the whole thing up, but he's the guy who pulls it out. You know, he he sticks the landing when it, when it's absolutely necessary. And so I think that kind of basic sort of story structure. I, I don't know. I don't know. It. They mean to say that he that he fucked it up, though. In other words, he's he's take he's fixing the situation that occurred. But I don't necessarily know that the movie blames him morally for it because because it's fairly clearly depicted that his motivation for just for going after Icarus one is not merely the payload, right? It's not, it, it, there's there, it's pretty clearly hinted, you know, and implied that one of the reasons he thinks two payloads are better than one is also that there's a small chance that, you know, there's going to be crew that might've survived and maybe we can do something to help them. There's obviously a rescue element to it. Yeah. And well, think- he's, he, he's, he's pulling the Icarus, right? He's flying too close to the sun. He's reaching for too much. That's, that's, that's again, it fits entirely with the theme of the film. Right. But, I think I think that this is what distinguishes the this is what distinguishes him from the Chris Evans character is the Chris Evans character doesn't have the notion of maybe we should rescue the crew maybe we should see about rescuing the crew and I think that this is actually a moral failing on the part of the Chris Evans character the Kappa character might might overreach in trying to you know split the baby and you know help humanity and help the immediate situation but the fact that he does so and that he perseveres in doing so all the way down the chain to the very very end is is the moral triumph of that character you know and and that's and that's why he's rewarded with the the death of enlightenment whereas the Chris Evans character is rewarded with you know freezing to death in a trapped in a computer tank and not accomplishing his mission. The Cure 7's character had a very specific task, which he did not achieve. And I think that is significant to the plotting of the movie in that the Kappa character has a very specific task as well, which he does achieve. So I, I, I hope this will be a, a somewhat informative question. Um, which which death in this movie was the most um, impactful to you? Why do you think that? For me, it was Chris Evans. Oh my gosh, I mean, he just keeps jumping. He has to do it three times yeah. and pull down the computer and, and you're just like, holy crap. What there's he a struggle with through. his, there's like a perpetualness with his his death. There's there's a struggle and, 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 a, and an act he, that needs to be completed. He has the inevitability, you know, the inevitability is there for him just like everybody else. But his, it was like, hey, this is gonna go on for a while. You get to be tortured for a long period of time. And then while his leg is jammed in there and bleeding, and he's already freezing to death. He's still shouting into a microphone, just do it. And you're just like, that is powerful. He was like, channeling he, his inner Shia LeBeau during his last moments, yeah. <laughs> yeah. For me, the death that had the most impact by far was uh, was Kaneda's death. And that's, because, and that's because that's the moment at which 
you realize a couple of things. That's the moment at which the movie signals a couple things to you. First of all, and, and, and to backtrack a little bit, I think the mo moment at which it becomes a horror movie is actually when the oxygen garden blows up. And now there is not enough oxygen and somebody has to die. And and the fact that you're all trapped in a room and somebody has to die is saw. You know what I mean? Like yeah. It's, yeah, it's other films. Right there. Right there. That is the horror movie right there. It is, that's where the horror movie begins. So when Kaneda dies, there's two elements that I think make it really important to the movie and very emotionally impactful as well. That's the first that's the first time that you realize that the characters are going to be laying down their lives in the movie for the mission. You know, you realize that there's that, that now this is going to be a thing. And the more important aspect is that they clearly play up the religious kind of overtone, the mystical, not to let, let's keep it away from religious and let, leave Pinbacker in the religious element. Let's say the mystical overtones for the movie. He he turns, you know, he turns and Searle asks him, what do you see? And he clearly turns, you know, because because he has accepted the, the, that inevitability. And so and so that's the moment at which you realize that death in the movie is not necessarily going to be portrayed as only a bad thing, that it is also going to be portrayed as something that, that has a mystical existential element that is a release, that is a mystery. And and that that's crucial for being able to interpret what happens in the rest of the movie, I think. Yeah, that's the that's the point in the movie where the the uh, the iconic, the very beautiful score uh starts up. That's I think yeah, it's the I was time. just gonna say the same thing. That was when you that music hit, hits you and that is just the most amazing score. And I I see it in tons of uh trailers and stuff now they play that that song i'm like you can't steal the power of sunshine <laughs> and we could we could like so it's interesting uh, i'll piggyback off that antonio because i would distinguish for me the most chilling the most impactful death you i, I think for most people would be canada i can you're right canada's death is is uh, extremely meaningful and it's different than all i think all of the other deaths in the in the film the one that uh, troubled me the most, the one that stood out to me the most, and this is going to sound really strange, was the comm officer dying. Um, because his, to me, was the most isolationary, um, the most uh, fear-inducing for me, being in a vacuum, coldness, space, alone. All of the things, like you could sum up his death as the fear of all of my other horror movies on my list combined. Like the way he dies is is the thing that I think scares me most, right? The the There is no up or down, left or right. You're in a vacuum of cold, dead space, and it's just you, right? I mean, there are people flying out of the airlock with him, so maybe that's not entirely true. But for the most part, it's an extremely isolationary way to go, right? Um, Searle, he at least has a, a, a comms thing right before he goes, and he tells, you know, he's going to let the thing, the... Uh, son take him and he at least gets to say something but when they all get blown out there the assumption is that they're going to ho hopefully make it into the other airlock but this dude doesn't he ricochets and flies off into nothingness into an infinite nothingness and it's not just that but it's it's really the 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 scene itself where you he just his eyes freeze and you can feel his breath leave him and it's like you you the film is showing you his last millisecond of existence very viscerally to me um, yeah, like crystals come out of his mouth. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. His last gasp of breath, and it's like it seems to be a still image. When his eyes freeze over, it's it's really fucked. And that's why they were saying, keep your eyes, you know, correct. Don't look it at it, it, hide it in, because your eyeballs will freeze, and that's that is Ooh. horrifying. <laughs> yeah, I I think his death just to me sort of um, it spoke to me more as something I I 
I, I would hate to go out his way, you know, so much so that I, I would even go so far as to say I'd rather go out the Chris Evans way than I think the comms officer way. Seriously, it, it, I, it's weird because at least the at least with Chris Evans, there's some ground upon which I mean, I actually literally like like physical ground that you die on. But I think more more analogically, it there's there's something to me about floating into nothingness. Whether that is literal or whether we take that to be metaphorical, there's something about that. That is true. He was the comms officer and had no connection. But Chris Evans dies, still being able to shout to Kappa some words Mm -hmm. of encouragement so that they can get their mission taken care of. So Mm -hmm. at least he went out dying, interacting with another human being, whereas this guy, the comms guy of all people, is just floating alone. Yeah. Looking at his own image in these like reflective plates of him seeing the horrifying image of him turning into this frozen popsicle man yeah it's no so yeah no no voice good. no voice vacuum frozen nothingness right these are all things that sort of come to mind when you see his death and uh man any film that exploits those things you know in a in a context of space or really doesn't even need to be space it could be in the ocean could be deep in the ocean for me. Like that's a very similar fear. I, it really, it does not need to be isolated to space for me to scare me like that. But just something about it's almost like the reverse of being born. I, I, it's some weird fear I have of just just having no standards of anything to to judge anything. No, I mean you're it's just black and floating and cold and nothing. There's something about that. Like, I feel like my biggest fear would be to go. Actually, my wife almost bought me a Groupon for one of those. Like I have like really bad anxiety. So my wife say, Hey, maybe you should think about doing one of these like these little like what is it? It's like a, a sea salt like a salt floating sensory deprivation thing that you can get on Groupon, you know what I mean? Where you just basically float. You float in like this little thing and you turn the lights off and it's dark yeah, sensory deprivation tank. I was like, Are you trying to kill me, woman? Do you want me to die? I will be the first heart human attack being to immediate. Die. Yeah. I the lights got to be on because I was like, look, I'll buy the group on to try it because it's supposed to be relaxing. But like the lights staying on, they better have a fucking lamp in there because if it is pitch black and I'm floating and I close my eyes and for that split second, I'm in like an infinite abyss. I'm going to be thinking of the comms officer from that movie. I'm going to be freaking the shit out. And I am not joking. Like I that is like scary as shit to me. I think it would be fun if if you do do it, make sure to film a before and after. <laughs> so <laughs> your reaction i saw a list on imdb and it was um a list of movies that all incorporate this huge horror for you which is people in space and scary okay. death things happen so you're you're gonna have your event horizon alien um i think they even put on their um uh, a movie that they weren't in space they actually landed on a planet so i don't think that one counts but there was a whole list of movies where you're trapped in space or in a spaceship, and um, Gravity which one would be the scariest one for you to be mm. trapped on? And Sunshine was on the list. Um, mm. And we've watched Event Horizon. I think we're eventually going to watch Alien. Um, what do you guys think for you would be the the ultimate scary space place? Oh, that's tough. I mean, I I so I hate to do this because we're reviewing the film, but so far, man, Sunshine. Seriously. I, I am so mad at Antonio for showing me this movie because it, I and I we mentioned this in the previous one of the previous podcasts that I made the mistake of watching it the same day I was finally going to watch Event Horizon. I hadn't seen it in like a decade, 
And dude, I was left with a more raw state of fear in Sunshine than I was in Event Horizon, which was I angered me because I was like, partly because I wanted to be more scared with Event Horizon. I feel like I've that, that fear of grown gravity? a little bit out of. Yeah, gravity. So gravity was a little different just because it's really, I almost feel like it contradicts everything else I'm going to say. Gravity certainly had that shit in it. It, it really freaked me out. But it was more um, of a, a mo like, not emotional, emotional fear. It was like she's flying around, stuck to things. It wasn't, it didn't really exacerbate the fear of, of, of a vacuum of space so much as, it, it didn't push that on me, I felt like. It was more just like disorientation. So it was more disorientation than the void. So when I look at Event Horizon, there's a, a, an otherness. Maybe we should bring back the Lovecraftian thing. Maybe that's sort of what it is, that there's a dread, a cosmic otherness, or something that's a, a void out there that you're being faced with in something unknown. And there's some of that in gravity, but gravity puts that in the background and puts on the forefront disorientation and floating around and flying around and doing all this. And it, it definitely scared me. It scared the shit out of me, actually. But I don't think as much as as Sunshine or, event, or even Event Horizon, to be honest with you. So Sunshine gets it for me so far. If you ask me what is the most terrifying space film I've seen to date, I would say Sunshine. I'd, I'd probably I'd probably agree with that. There's there's some scary space movies out there for sure, but um, I can't think of one that's that's uh, scarier than Sunshine overall. And Aliens a little. I think the Alien certainly has Alien's some of it. It's pretty but, fucked up. Yeah, but it's um, yeah. a different kind of fear, which wouldn't be your main fear. You know, yeah, it's aliens like impregnating your body. <laughs> yeah, that'll be, a... I mean, that, and that'll be really fun to get into because I, I do think that that that's to me very easily how I interpret Alien, not so much as having uh, a space issue, although there are some of that in the film. It's really like, I, I think the film to me is, and we'll get into this when we do the reviews, is like about pregnancy and about, it's, it's other, there's some other fears there that go on way beyond space, like there is in Sunshine and, and like there is in Event Horizon, but I feel like they're in the background in some of these other movies, whereas in Sunshine, it's like, this is what everything is about your place in relation to the sun. And by the way, that's the other thing I really liked about this movie is that, um, and this is one of the things Shara sent me the video where Tarantino marks about this, that really there's not, you think about it, there's not many films literally about the sun. Like uh, just that's what this thing is about. And Sunshine is one of the few films that actually tackles the subject matter of the sun in any way that makes it central to the story like this. What I dug about the film is that it was used as a really good device to make us think about our place in the cosmos, to make us think about ourselves. And not just in kind of the superficial sense of, oh, there's a galaxy with trillions of different stars and they're all this big and here's our place. But no, it was very, it had a very existential feel to it. And like I said, I think it all went back into the scope of the project with us going in and trying to restart. I think our place in relation to the star was explored in almost a perfect way to me. I mean, it really, it really made us think about higher level things that we don't really think about in most films. And it, this film just struck me in that sense as being very unique and very high-minded. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I would say that a lot of that comes from the overall humanistic roots of the movie. And, and this influences the movie in a number of different ways. Um, you know, it, I think I think the moral choices that are made in the movie are very clearly presented along humanistic ethical lines on what would be right and wrong to do. There's a lot of utilitarian kind of thinking that's that's presented in the movie, and it's often presented as and it's certainly presented as equally valid to the more emotional 
sorts of moral thought. The and there's also a lot of uh, aspects in which you know obviously pinbacker is you know religious and that's kind of you know a, a depicted negatively. Um, more to the point though, the movie um, even is mostly filmed without the actors wearing makeup, which I thought was a really interesting thing. It's almost unheard of in film production. And the actress and the actors for this movie wore little or no makeup, which is why Searle looks so fucked up in a lot of cases because because it's no makeup. And um, and so and so I think that I think it does a good. This also does a good job of highlighting the humanism of the movie. The movie is designed not only to to emphasize humanistic religious tones or humanistic humanistic ethical tones, but is also actually designed to look humanistic as well. The people are not made up fancily. They don't wear a whole lot of makeup. There's the the uh, outfits are not super elaborate. And and the movie is also about the movie also really heavily emphasizes the notion of how people deal with death in a way that that I think is common to a lot of um, humanistically themed movies. One, one uh, comparison, favorable comparison that I would make to Sunshine is to the work, you know, Alien already came up, is to the work of Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott is also an atheist. His atheism also comes through in his movies, and you likewise see that his movies are focused on very, very closely around questions of death. Uh, they also emphasize the richness of beauty in the world around us, in the natural world around us, and uh, explore similar sort of realistic uh, themes in them that are that are very close and common to the human experience and, and sort of avoids abstraction almost, almost to a fault. Um, and I think that, you, you, for example, Gladiator would be a great movie that focuses around themes that, and honestly end up being pretty similar to sunshine in a lot of ways in a lot of cases um and i think you see and is also filmed in, in a way that emphasizes these humanistic themes you know that where where the way that the, the use of color the choice of costume is all designed to highlight the the fundamental realism of the ideas that are being talked about um, for for whatever magical realist elements there might be in calling a mission like this Icarus, in um, be playing a little bit fast and loose with the physics of the thing, which they deliberately did, um, and also in the character of Pinbacker, I think that the movie at heart really is a realist project that is that that really shows forth its uh, its its bias toward humanism in a way that that is very similar to say the work of Ridley Scott. Sci-fi horror, right, is is informative in a way that is really interesting compared to some of the other subgenres of horror because it's also it, it's it's future-minded. And whenever you do a future-minded film, it it relies on conventional fears, you know, and and things that we're worried about now or things that we're thinking about in the future now, right? So you can see, in in terms of the shitty Hollywood version of this, twenty years ago, it was all the fucking you know, twenty twelve, everything's gonna get blown up, sort of you know, movies. Uh, you know, we have a lot of um, global warming stuff going on now, right? So, but I think for sci-fi, you have this, you have this canvas from which to paint a, a set of fears that we have now about the way things are going to be and how they ought to be. And I think that that's maybe different than any other subgenre of film because it's future-minded. Yeah, well, and specifically with, you know, these Ridley Scott films, um, the main conflict is human versus artificial intelligence, um, these beings that are like us, but it's very Westworld. I think that element is what really puts the fear in there. But then Alien brings in, not only do you have human versus AI, but human versus alien. And it's like all yeah. of these conflicting things. And 
are the AI working with the aliens? You know, <laughs> it's like there's all of these really weird elements that come together. It's why it's so popular. Everybody calls it sci-fi, yeah. but once again, yeah. I'm sorry, but it's a little horrific. <laughs> I mean, but it's all perspective, right? Some of the movies that scare me the most, the, I don't know if you'd really call them horror movies, like Donnie Darko and Clockwork Orange. These are very horrifying movies, but are they considered like, horror? Like with Ex Machina, the reason I, I think it's a horror movie is like if you were to change the plot only by making the girl someone who was claimed to be demon-possessed rather than someone who was claimed to be a potentially dangerous AI, and then the whole movie she you know acts nice, there's absolutely no evidence of it, blah, 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 and then you get the exact same ending, and the same twist occurs, and you realize, oh shit, she's a manipulative bitch, and she, all that shit back there was just manipulative bitchery, and now I see how every little thing was just totally manipulation, um, then everyone would think it was a horror movie, right? Just if, if you just made it supernatural instead of mechanical as, as the plot device. Um, and that's so, true, I, and that's a lot of the time when people say things are sci-fi, it's just because it's in space or has mm -hmm. robots, yeah. mm -hmm. but I, I don't buy into that because just because there's tech involved does not mean it's sci-fi um obviously as sci-fi elements because of the tech but there's can be other elements that are put on top of it like you can have a sci-fi romance movie we've seen those before um you can have sci-fi horror black mirror is a great example of, of wonderful sci-fi horror when you uh when you ask so when i ask people um and i've, and I've done this before with some of my friends some of my wife's friends i go hey nick give me like a, a good scary movie in space it has to be a space horror movie nine out of ten will say what's that jason movie where he's like he's is there there's like a jason one where he's in space or they'll although or they'll go didn't like didn't they do like a leprechaun movie in space like and i just like that to me is the state of horror. i don't want to get on a soapbox here and and, and bitch about this but to me those that's are not scary they're funny <laughs> <laughs> those are comedies yeah. and you would fight right and, you, and so the 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 what it, the I'm, gonna, I'm so gonna steal this phrase from antonio Manip manipulative bitchery that is the that's the phrase of the evening right there but um the, the, the thing that gets me the most about that is that if Hollywood video and Blockbuster video were around, I must be really nostalgic because I keep bringing that up, but if those were around, you would they, they would be in the horror section, right? Jason 10, uh, Jason X, and, and Leprechaun 4 would be in the horror section, whereas uh, Sunshine would be in sci-fi. Uh, shit, Event Horizon may be in sci-fi. And in fact, I think it was when I first picked it up a long time ago, I think. You got to look deeper than just a, a particular genre of film. Like a lot of the things I see on YouTube, a lot of the reviews, a lot of the, the commentary tend to stick to only very explicit horror, right? But I think there's something, I think there's something really cool about drawing your own horror from films that aren't traditionally horror, right? That may be traditionally sci-fi. Jonah, again, is probably the perfect example of this, the most extreme example of this, of taking uh, dramas, social commentaries, and being like legitimately existentially terrified of them. Like be, having real, like, like not being able to sleep because you watch a film in which there's nothing but dialogue and, a, you know, <laughs> like communication gone wry, like shit about human nature. And there's no violence in some of them, right? That can scare someone more than a leprechaun in space that's in a horror movie section, a blockbuster. I really need to, like, I need to go find a blockbuster and just hang out around it. For, like, well, okay. Here's the fun part. The, the fact that you keep bringing it up is kind of perfect. Um, blockbuster and Hollywood video, they set this really fucked up mindset that this is the genre for that movie that's yeah. not how genres work there's a mix to everything you know there's a lot of conversations about 
who we are as people and how there's a spectrum to who we are, you know, on so many levels. And we need to understand the nuance of that all. And movies are the same because they reflect humanity. So trying to put one label on it is just, it's not accurate. And now we have these great devices that will put all the genres like mix and match it. You could see like Netflix. Um, there's a Yahoo video app that I use and it has a mood picker and you can pick like thriller and, Ooh, that's cool. you know, romance and whatever. And then it'll find a movie that has all those genres oh, shit, mixed together cool. for you. What? Okay. So let's start with Antonio. Like, okay, Sunshine, right? This was your first film to, to talk about on your list. Uh, scale of one to 10, one being the lowest, 10 being the best. I think at this point, the highest rating you gave was It Follows with a, with a solid nine, I think. What would you give this film? Um, I think I'd give the film an 8.5. And it's, I think It Follows is a slightly better movie on a narrative cohesion level. In every other respect, I do like Sunshine better, um, but narrative cohesion really matters to me. And so that's where that, that final little ding, ding goes in. Um, I think it's a very strong movie. I think anybody can enjoy it. Uh, it is, I think anybody can find it scary. I, uh, your, your wife might need to get looked at if she didn't actually <laughs> find any aspect of that intimidating. And, uh, and it's actually a smarter movie. Like the, uh, the most recent time I watched it to take notes for, you know, this, this podcast, um, I actually was impressed with, with how much smarter the movie was than I had originally surmised it to be. I'd surmised it to be a pretty straightforward, you know, play by the numbers kind of thing. But this time around, like I noticed this time around, the moral aspect, the moral hierarchy um, that was very subtly put in there. I noticed also the juxtaposition between um, the Chris Evans character and the and the Killian Murphy character. You know, fire versus ice, and then you know, fire dies in ice, and ice dies in fire. So there's a lot there's a lot more to chew on than I had thought, even having seen the movie three or four times already. So all all kudos, all pluses. Garrett's corrected; it has a weaker third act, um, a, a problem that it also shares with uh, sci-fi author Robert Heinlein, in my opinion, by the way, just as a random assorted fact of great first two acts, bad third act. But even so, I think that it maintains it. I think even though it has a crappy third act, it manages to finish strong. I think a lot of people will cry when at the, at the ending and it has a beautiful, it's such a beautiful and emotionally impactful ending that I think it overcomes its many weaknesses and finishes on a really good note. And one of the things I love about the movie, one of the things I love most of all about this movie is it is a movie where everyone dies and there's a happy ending, not a depressing ending. It's a happy ending. It's an optimistic ending. It's a positive ending. And it's still a horror movie where everyone dies. It doesn't have to make any, it doesn't have to take any shortcuts or make any apologies for, you know, arbitrarily doing some deus ex machina thing. It kills everyone and it still ends on a happy note. That's quality. Yeah, I, I didn't even think of that. Um, I can't think of any other movie. I'd have to really sit down and think about a movie where everyone dies and it's okay, it's good. And it's not, it doesn't leave you with like, cause there's, there's movies where everybody dies, but you leave feeling deflated. I didn't feel leaving deflated in this. I felt uplifted at, at, at the end of, of Kappa's death. That's in that sense, it's it's not only high-minded, it's it's doubly unique, I think. And I, I totally agree with you. I can forget, dude, as much as I shat all over the, the third act, I can absolutely forgive it. I can totally forgive the third act because everything else in the first two is so unbelievably magnificent. Um, I'd give this film probably an eight. I'd give it a 9.5 if it wasn't for Pinbacker in the third act. I'd, I'd, I'm deducting a point and a half, which is like a, 
not just a point, like I thought about this. It hurt me so much that I'll take that extra half. Like the pinbacker, he's the point and a half of the film. Uh, it would have t probably tied It Follows for me were it not for, not necessarily pinbacker as pinbacker, but the way pinbacker was introduced so suddenly and abruptly and how you can clearly see how he was meant to function. It's like, you know how they should have done it better. It's, it's, it's one of the thing, one of the big pet peeves of Garrett, like I even saw. Like one of Garrett's biggest pet peeves in any horror film is I, I could have done this. I can see why they did it this way and I would have done, I would have done it this way and it would have been better. I rarely interact with films in, in that kind of approach. This movie sort of made that happen to me. I was like that, I could have done that better. And if I could do it better, ouch, you know. But um, no, for, for the high-mindedness, um, for just the angst and the dread and the emptiness and the aloneness, um, just it left me feeling uh, uh, just uh, scarred, scarred, but like like an optimistically scarred sort of way. It's really strange. It, it ended well, and I was satisfied, but I also just I felt drained is a way to put it. I felt very very drained. Yeah, it it left me uh, changed and and drained, but it it was okay, right? Whereas other horror films leave me like when I saw Raw, a completely different film. It left me drained but sick to my stomach. This was like a good, comfortable, scary, it was like good and bad. It was very yin and yang, very ice and fire, if I could steal some of your terminology. It left me feeling like both of those things, like life, exactly. So i give it an eight um, if it weren't for that son of a bitch pinbacker. What about you, Shara? What would you give this? Well, I'd give it an eight, and I would have, once again, I would have given it a much higher rating, but honestly, that is a really high rating for me. If you look at my normal rating, that's still very high, and it's because of the amazing cinematography um, the light and darkness was constantly like put in your face and it's so beautiful. The, the sun looked beautiful. Um, when they go to sit quietly together as a group to watch Mercury go by, it was so, it, there's these really quiet, wonderful moments that you're just like, I, if this was just on my screen all the time, just these people watching Mercury float by, like I just always had that there. It'd be like a fire in a fireplace that I could watch. It's beautiful the special effects were amazing like there was never a time like in event horizon where you see these random floating objects that just look really fake almost like a video game there's never a moment like that in sunshine yeah. where you're like what the heck is that thing and even the monster makeup you know where he's he, you never were at some point going that is super cgi like uh is is amazing so there's never any of those horrible moments the only moment where it's like what was just how he was presented how the monster was presented and that's a storytelling problem really so the visuals and the sound are just nailed it so eight eight is what i, I give it but it could have been one of the highest rated honestly for me Fucking pinbacker. Well, like, yeah. and, and I, it, there's a sense in which you walk away from the film. I feel like years later when you look at the film, right? Like after you've made it, if you're Danny Boyle, if you're the, like looking back on a film like this, it, it's almost, let me see if I can phrase this the right way. It's almost um, more iconic in the sense that it's flawed, right? Like you can look back and go, oh, it's, it's, it's this, it's got all this stuff, but there's this one thing, right? And that one thing adds to it as being an iconic film precisely because we talk about things in a context of it could have been this, this other thing, it could have been this great thing, right? So I, 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 I don't dock it more than a point and a half for that. I, I can forgive it. Um, I loved the way that Quentin Tarantino just ripped this movie to shreds because he loves it so much. Like in the video you sent me, Shayra, he just the third act. He just what did he say? He said he said something like, um, "I wasn't upset. I wasn't bothered. The feeling that I felt was one of betrayal." And he like he was like really upset about it. He was like, it's like a disappointed dad." Yeah, exactly. 
exactly. He was, uh, it, it, and it, I can see that because everything in that point, you're just enamored by the cinematography, by the music. You're just, it, 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 I was so enamored. I actually had to sit up. I was watching it over here on my projector and I made the mistake of, of course, I do this every time, watching a space film while I'm lying down and I have my pillows here and I'm like, sit, I'm, and there's some scenes where I just had to like, I literally had to sit up and like, and just be like, I was just taken aback by some of the scenes. And I didn't have to do that in Event Horizon, by the way. But in Sunshine, I was just, it was just so overwhelming. And you're right, the film didn't have like a cheap space feel to it. It had like a, a rich, thorough, realistic feel to it. There wasn't like little instruments floating around and you're going like, I didn't need, like, come on. I know you're in space. You don't need to feed me. Do you know what I mean? Like, and that's an event horizon. You're totally right. Yeah. One thing that I actually um, want to call attention to that I, that I forgot to in my summary is um, the sound design is amazing. I'm not talking the score. I'm talking the sound design is amazing. And then not only is it, not only is it just excellent sound design generally, and I invite people watching it to take a close listen and, and just take, enjoy that. But it's also, um, it's also very confident sound design and it, and it's sound design that enables some of the more interesting cinematographic choices in the movie. Um, there's one particular camera technique that the movie uses repeatedly throughout the movie where it frames a character's face while that the character's face is expressing a particular emotion and, and the camera holds it motionless on the face, the face, it's not, it doesn't contain dialogue on screen. And if you think, if you were to think about how that would look without sound, it would look dumb. It would just look like, you know, portrait of dude, just kind of uncomfortably sort of like looking around and then switch to next shot. But because of the sound design, because of the way that implies what else is happening in the shot and frames everything using the sound, um, these moments actually end up being very effective and the camera is free. The camera is liberated to do these real close in, very emotional tension building shots because the sound design is so strong that it can lean on those for interest and and the visual then becomes interesting as opposed to where it would be boring without such compelling sound design. So anyway, just want to encourage viewers to, to absolutely check the sound design out, pay really close attention. It's really, really good. I don't know if you know this, Shara, but like Antonio is all about finding shit in sound. Because what we learned last week in our Babadook hangout is he was able to actually isolate and, and he could tell the noise that the Babadook monster made was specifically a sound from, I think, Warcraft. Was it Warcraft, Antonio? So he literally found the exact noise, the, the, like the exact file. Like the noise those sound people used on Babadook, I guarantee you. And he posted it in the Hangout and I clicked it and listened to it and it's exactly the noise the Babadook made. Like I I had read on Event Horizon the noise, it went, uh, there's a particular noise from Doom, right? And I was like, oh yeah, that is from Doom. So, and then I, I started playing the Event Horizon Doom game, but it all spawned on me from something I read. And then this guy just hears it and goes, oh, what, Warcraft. I'm like, oh my God. Like either this dude played Warcraft for a long time or he's got that he's got that ability, that uncanny ability to recognize sound and noises. An interesting skill to have, Antonio. Don't lose it. Yeah, I was I was actually at a music camp as a kid and one of the instructors told me I wasn't terribly good at, at, at the musical aspect of it. Um, like sight reading or anything, but the instructor told me everywhere you go, you're always whistling the latest thing that you've heard, and that's a skill that not a lot of people have. So apparently, I have some sort of like audio audio MP3 recorder in my head. And you know what? It's 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 
turning out into good use, man. You are now in a podcast where you are able to not even have to look anything up. You said, I know what that is, and you've informed us. Uh, now, I, I, you just have to do that for every movie now. Like, you I, you just have to look for it and let us know this movie. I'm glad the unique Foley work. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we have an 8, an 8, and an 8.5. Is that right? So this is this is a pretty pretty well done. That's a pretty high score for most people, uh, for considering all the other ones we did. Um, so next week we are doing um, this will be a little different than some of the others. It's going to be Ben Carruth's um, uh, first choice, and his is Triangle. Uh, to me, it is one of the few Bermuda Triangle movies that uh, I, I think is really well done, and in fact, it may be the best one. There's not many Bermuda Triangle films that I think do it well. There's an episode of The X-Files that I think does it really well. I think, uh, Antonio, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But uh, uh, movie-wise, it's not many good Bermuda Triangle movies. This one is, I I think, magnificent, and it has a twist in it. This may be the first one that has a a very significant twist at the end, and you're either going to really like it or you're, you're going to hate it. Uh, and we'll get into it when we do the thing, but it's also one of the more Nietzschean films. Most of the films we've been doing, I've been kind of pulling Nietzsche into it. Like I've been like, okay, I'm going to throw him into the movie. This is one of the first films where I think it's it's a little overt. Um, some of the stuff related to Amor Fati and, and, and fate and uh, shit like that. So we'll, we'll get into that. It'll be really fun. I think it's on Netflix. Um, it's either on Netflix or Hulu. So um, if you enjoyed what you listened to, make sure to uh, find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at the Deadly Analysis Podcast. If you agree or disagree with anything we said, um, you know, leave a comment below. Uh, thank you for taking the time to watch, and we'll see you guys next week.